Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of HR Zone's All Hands on Tech podcast. I'm Becky Norman, the editor of HR Zone, and for this episode we're going to be focusing on learning and development. Joining our host Max Bloomberg is L&D expert Don Taylor, who talks about the findings from his Global Sentiment Survey and what these suggest for L&D in the year ahead. This conversation was recorded in February, before the research had gone live. You'll hear Don saying that the report has not yet been published, but it now has, and you can find the link to where you can download this in the show notes. This was also before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, which I also wanted to highlight as it's not mentioned in the discussion around the future of L&D. That's not to say the conversation is outdated. In fact, Don's advice is perhaps now even more important for businesses to heed given the current climate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of HR Zone's All Hands on Tech podcast. I'm Max Bloomberg, and today I'll be chatting with Don Taylor, a globally renowned influencer and commentator in learning and development. Starting his career coding PDP-11s and then training in the 1980s, Don has worked his way from entry-level design and delivery through to vice president and director positions. He has been chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute since 2010 and has chaired the Learning Technologies Conference since 2000. Don has also been running the L&D Global Sentiment Survey for the past six years to uncover the top trends in the industry. A very warm welcome to you, Don. Thank you very much, Max. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about the uh, the man behind the L&D, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, who are you and what got you to where you are today? Um, yeah. Max, there is no man behind it. I'm L&D through and through. If you strip away the L&D, nothing remains. Um, now, I'm a guy who left university in, or graduated from university in the uh, early 80s, decided to go into training, in this case, training English as a foreign language, and hasn't left since. Um, I've always had a technology background because I started um, programming computers after I left school before I went to college. Um, and I've always been interested, though, much more in the learning side and the people side than in the technology side but the technology supports what we do and for me that's something that it's a balance to strike isn't it making sure that we understand the role that technology can play while at the same time understanding that people are are where the learning happens um so what what do you want primarily what are we going to chat about today well, I'm happy to talk about the Global Sentiment Survey. It's fresh off the... In fact, it's not even printed yet. That's how fresh it is. <laughs> but the survey's, the survey's finished and it will it will be uh, coming off the press at some point uh, in the second or, or last week, of, third or last week of February. And I think it tells us a couple of interesting things about learning and development nationally and also internationally. So tell us a little bit about the Global Sentiment Survey. I mean, it's reasonably well-known, or dare I say very well-known, uh, in the global L&D community. Um, what is the history? Why did you decide to launch it? And and um, you're quite famous for having just one question. What What is that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was sitting around in in 2014, it must have been 2013, lamenting the fact that it's very difficult to know what's going to happen in the future with learning and development. 
I had tried through the Learning and Performance Institute, surveying people in the field to ask them what were they going to do next year. But the problem is when you do that, they say more of everything and it doesn't tell you a great deal. And if you go back and, and look at what they've actually done, um, very often there's very little change. So I wanted something that would take the pulse of what people were thinking very quickly and not concentrate on plans or budgets or anything, but just get a sense of where people's sentiment was, hence the sentiment survey. And it was that was where the one question came from, make it as easy as possible for people to just say, I think this is important or that is important. Give them a list of things to choose from and aim to get the whole thing done in less than a minute. So you get a sense of where people are, they don't, people don't have time to overthink it. They just throw down what they think is interesting. Now, if you ask one person, the question is, by the way, what will be hot in workplace learning development in whatever the next year is? If you ask one person that question, it doesn't tell you very much. But if you ask 2,000 people, in fact, this year is 2,200 people from 86 countries, the question, then you start to get some interesting information. And if you've done it for seven years, as we have now, then things really start to get interesting because you can see trends emerging. Now, it's very important to remember that because you ask people the question, what do you think will be hot this year? It doesn't mean that's going to be hot. But so everything that people say will be hot, uh, not sorry, not everything that people say will be hot takes off. But everything which goes mainstream at some point was thought of as being hot by at least a small group of people. And how much agreement is there um, on the top couple of choices of people? You know, is there a, is there a widespread in what people think will be hot or, or is there sort of a, a general agreement? It's pretty extraordinary how wide the agreement is, actually. Um, now, we have to add some caveats, by the way. The cap one of the caveats is I don't know who's responding to the survey. They might be in learning and development. They might not. Given the way it's put to people on social media and through direct email, I, the vast, vast majority of people will be those directly involved in learning and development. Uh, but the more important uh, caveat, of course, is that it's a self-selecting group. So people only respond if they feel like responding, and therefore the people responding are pretty much certain to be those who are have a technological bent in the first place because they're reached through social media and email, and also who are interested in trends in learning and development. So it's a skewed survey. Having said all that, that group of people, I think, are, if you think about the familiar Everett Rogers diffusion of innovation curve, those people are typically amongst the innovators and early adopters. And what they think is important does become important later on. Now, you ask the question, Max, how much uniformity is there? The bizarre thing is there's a remarkable amount of uniformity amongst particularly the top Eight, the top half of the table, we give people a choice of 15 options to choose from. The top two or three consistently for the past five years has been, not this year, but the previous three years, personalization. And before that, for two years, collaboration and social learning. So there's a, there's a really strong consensus around those. Both those have dropped away. And what's very interesting is that this year, there is a consensus across those 2,200 people that learning analytics is the most important thing they think is hot in 2020. 
and that's a sub that substantial change because it's firstly because it's not collaboration and it's not personalization but also it's a substantial change because as i say it's right across the regions in and i divide the responses into five regions australia new zealand europe india north america and united kingdom uh, and in the past we have seen ideas come out of North America and then be adopted by the rest of the world. That's not the case here. It's uniformly across those regions, learning analytics is seen as being something important. Now, why do you think uh, learning analytics has risen to the top? I, I noticed in 2019, you were, you were quick to, uh, and right to point out that data <laughs> underpinned your top three. Um, yeah. You know, it seems that data underpins analytics. Why do you think it's risen up like this? Yeah, data underpins analytics. It also underpins at least three and probably four of the top five on the survey this year, analytics, personalization, uh, learning experience platforms, uh, and uh, also artificial intelligence. It doesn't really have much to do with consult with, with, uh, with collaborative learning. So data is, is seen as being incredibly important now, and that's for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, in our individual lives as consumers, if you like, we are exposed to the effect of data all the time. Uh, and you see this, whether you go on to, I don't know, you, you're buying something online and it suggests what you might want to buy and what other people bought that were similar. You go to your TV streaming service, it suggests things you might like and so on. We also see it in much more subtle ways that we might not appreciate when we do something on a platform and it anticipates what we want to do and presents us with the op with the options without us having to make a selection. Uh, there are numerous examples of that in our private life as consumers, but also, of course, in our life at work. We see this that very often the, the interface we're using, the systems we're using at work, alter according to the context we're in. Now, we see that in our daily lives and we, I think, contrast that with the very traditional role of learning development to create content and deliver it. And we see that data, and in particular analytics, can make a big change to how we operate if we use it well. Um, we see that, as I say, in our personal lives. And we also definitely see it at work. We see analytics being used in sales, operation, marketing, and all other departments of most organizations. And I think people will be asking themselves, well, if it can work there, why isn't it being used more in L&D. So how should uh, L&D professionals be using learning analytics then? Well, I think we have to just, just go back to the survey for a second. We have to add our pinch of salt here and say, well, look, people talk about it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's important. It doesn't necessarily mean they know what they're talking about. It doesn't necessarily mean that even if they do know what they're talking about, that they know how to do it. Yes. However, having said all that, I do believe it is important. I believe we're actually at a an inflection point in learning and development, and it is something that is crucial to the future of L&D. Um, for a number of reasons, but I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but essentially, we live in a world where what I did 30 years ago, which is write and deliver a course, is no longer fit for purpose, not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with the course, but because it doesn't happen fast enough, and because delivering a lot of information in a small period, like in a course, is a pretty poor way of people learning things. So we have to 
have better ways of helping people learn, some of which is giving them content, and some of which is helping them learn by themselves, either from our own content or other people's. So we live in a world where things are, there are greater demands on the flow of information and the development of skills in organisations than there ever have been. In order that we, in order that learning development serves its purpose of helping individuals and organisations fulfil their potential, and that's what we do in learning development, we have to work faster and we have to work much sharper and and more aware of what's happening in the workplace. And we do that through analytics in the same way that, I don't know, sports have been transformed through the use of analytics. And it's possible to really focus on individual players and teams by getting feedback from, let's say, a football team. Uh, You could look at, to take a very specific example, um, in the change of management at Arsenal Football Club in the UK, they've managed to look at how identify that one particular problem was that the ball was being lost too often uh, in the midfield from which opposing teams were then creating shooting opportunities. Uh, The transfer to the new manager, Mikel Arteta, resulted in them really focusing on that. And when the ball is lost in midfield, closing down the uh, opponents so that they don't get a chance to pass it on the result has been that rather than in the previous games in that season, 23 opportunities of shooting coming from that, there's been one opportunity of shooting coming from uh, the new regime. Now, that is a very detailed example. It happens all the time in other parts of work. It's not happening with learning and development. The numbers are there. The data is there. So we should be going out and using that data effectively. There are lots of reasons why we don't, unfortunately. And, and what are the reasons that we don't? <laughs> you, you can't lead in like that and not answer it. I left you on a cliffhanger. Indeed. Um, if, you're, if you're wanting to deal with, with data, there are, there are five things you need to do. You need to know where the data is. You need to have permission to access it. You need to ask it the right questions. Sorry, you need to form the right question to ask. Then you need to ask it the right question. And then you need to interpret the results and possibly cycle back and ask more questions. Um, learning and development people tend to obsess about the fourth one of those. Let's let's query the the data source for information. But actually, that's something which you can do with a data scientist, or you can, you can pull somebody in to do that. That's much less, well, it's not less important, but it's something that could be outsourced. The real issue, actually, for, for learning and development people tends to come at the beginning of this, finding the data and getting permission to access it. That involves the sorts of skills which people don't typically have when they come into L&D, which is the assertive business relationships that L&D normally hasn't had. And in addition, possibly we don't have those other skills of querying, asking the right questions, and then interpreting the question when you get it. There are exceptions. So Guy Wilmshurst-Smith, for example, who works at Network Rail, did a brilliant presentation at Learning Technologies in the second week of February this year, when he talked about how they've used analytics and data crunching at Network Rail to be able to form a direct link from what happens in a training program. It's a pretty hands-on training program around track maintenance to go right the way through to what's the likely impact on delays later on on that piece of track if that person is trained or isn't trained. And the result is now the ability to go back to the business and say, look, you have these people on your team. Uh, I can take these people away, 
train them, go put them through my program, and I can show you within a pretty sure degree of certainty what the impact will be on the on the KPIs that you've got, which typically with network rail is uh, downtime on the track, you know, trains being delayed and so on for maintenance. So that that is the holy grail we've been striving for for years, the ability to format direct link and have a an ongoing relationship with the business where we are not delivering courses to order, but rather having proactive conversations about supporting the business. But the interesting thing is, coming right back to the question you asked, why don't we do it? Guy's background is being a Royal Engineer in the British Army, 30 years of service, and he was a colonel and was used to being in command and was used to also being assertive about what was required and what wasn't required. Now, the people typically coming into learning and development don't have a background with those sorts of self-assured approaches to the business. I'm not saying they don't necessarily have them, but it's not the typical background uh, if you come into LMT. And I think, strangely enough, we talk about needing to be data scientists, needing to understand how numbers and relationships work between data sets. All of that, I think, is much less important than being able to have the conversation with the business in the first place, which says, show me your data and give me access to it. Because <laughs> crucially, and something we haven't talked about for the last 15 minutes, that's my fault. When we talk about learning analytics, we should not be talking about the stuff that comes out of the learning platform. That's one part of a much bigger data set, which is about the business. Because learning analytics is really business analytics. Andy Wooler uh, Hitachi makes this point very well. We shouldn't be focusing on the data that we get coming out of our systems. We should be focusing on the data that is there in the business because, after all, that's our job, is dealing with the data in the business. That makes sense. Uh, totally. Um, and in fact, it would it would not be good if we had somebody with your experience uh, on the podcast and didn't ask you a couple of questions more generally um, about L&D now that, you know, we've we've looked at, at the excellent survey. Um, you asked the question, I think, in 2018 at Reed, um, you, you asked the audience, what is the purpose um, of L&D? So I'm going to throw that right back to you. Mm. Um, People came back with things, you know, or you came indeed came back with things like speed and, and making things mm -hmm. more effective, et cetera, et cetera. But, but what's the real reason? You know, I'm the CEO of a multinational organization. You're asking me for 30 million or 40 million dollars on L&D. Why, why should I give you that much? Why, why shouldn't I chuck that into, into automation and robotics or, or some other part of the operation? Well, maybe you should put it into automation and robotics. And what we should do is not have a conversation where I say, I deserve this money, but rather, here are the well-grounded bases on which I'm asking for the money, because I think I can help the organisation do its job better. And the reason I always ask this question to people about what L&D does, is that we tend to obsess on the daily tasks. I'm a designer, I'm a performance consultant, I'm an instructor, whatever. And that is a couple of steps away from the role of learning development. The role of learning development, in my mind, is very simply to help individuals and organizations fulfill their potential. Help individuals and organizations fulfill their potential. Now, 
actually the potential of an organization is, is unlimited, provided you keep supporting it and helping it grow. It may also be true for individuals, we don't know. So our job is to keep feeding that, but we can't do it in a vacuum. We have to do it by understanding what's going on in the business deeply, not on a superficial level. We have to understand the concerns that are at a small level, also the larger overriding aims of the organization. So when the when I go to the MD or the CEO and I say, look, I want 30 million pounds, it has to be for something that I can show will help the organization grow. It doesn't mean, or not necessarily grow, but fulfill its obligations and its purpose. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean there has to be an absolutely watertight return on investment argument. But there certainly needs to be data in there that shows that there's a very high probability that investing this money will result in increased, typically, productivity of individuals on the workforce. But on the other hand, if the CEO says, well, Donald, that's all very well, but actually, I believe I can get twice the effect by investing half the money in automation, then there is no argument to be had. The, the L&D person should say, well, in which case, we need to talk about a different role for L&D in this organization. Um, but certainly, they won't get the 30 million. So, so at what point then does the L&D strategy get created? Is that a, a corporate strategy uh, or is it something that when HR is creating the HR strategy that it brings it in? How core to corporate strategy is L&D? Well, there's two questions there. How core is it and how, how core should it be? Indeed. Uh, I obviously believe that it should be core to pretty much every organization strategy. It isn't typically because learning and development is seen as being a fulfillment function, rather like a pizza delivery service. You order up some courses and they come within 30 minutes. And we are not seen as having that strategic role to play with the organization. Yes. In organizations where it is seen as being strategic, then it's impossible to imagine the organization's planning taking place without L&D being an integral part of it. Now, if you look at the armed forces or at sports teams, for them, they are they spend the vast amount of their time training and a small amount of their time engaged in what we see as being their job. In fact, you rather hope that with your armed forces, they're going to spend all their time training and zero time engaged in fighting. Obviously, you want to see your football team play on a Saturday afternoon. Um, but they, so if you're talking to them about the training strategy, it's not, or the learning strategy, it's not something which gets tacked on as an afterthought. It's absolutely core to how they plan their work. And other organizations should be thinking about this. But it does mean that both the management and the L&D teams need to be presenting L&D in a different way. As long as it's presented around delivery of courses, there won't be enough traction to suggest that this is something integral to the business. As soon as we start shifting from delivering courses as what we do to something different, which is supporting learning, then I think we'll find ways that, yes, we should be involved in every conversation about what people are doing because we can support learning, which supports performance along the way. Underneath that role, by the way, that overall role, we exist to help individuals and organizations fulfill their potential. Underneath that, I think there are three practical things that we do, one of which is support short-term performance. The other 
the other of which is support long-term capability development. And underneath that, we provide foundations to support both of those. And very often we get caught in caught up and it's all about performance and now other people say no it's all about long-term capability actually both it's about both but it's also about the underlying network of support for that which could be technological it could also be cultural and it could also be about processes and systems internally probably the most important thing that learning and development can do uh, which we don't spend nearly enough time doing is helping people learn effectively for themselves not just throwing them in, in at the deep end but providing them with the understanding of how people learn, understanding of how they learn well, and the ability to do that at work. If we did more of that, then, I th and we were seen to do it, then I think we'd be much more tied into strategy and planning. And also, I think we'd be much more effective in what we do. So is Peter Stenge and, you know, the learning organisation, is that still as relevant today as it's ever been? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Every organization, sorry, I, I hate massive generalizations. I would say almost every generalization, almost every organization, almost every organization should be a learning organization simply because people are so important today in terms of the value of organizations. Um, and if you're not learning, it means you're not investing in the core capability of your organization. Um, but of course, a learning organization, uh, from Senga's point of view, wasn't just about individuals learning and being trained, it was also about organizations adapting their processes and systems to react to and anticipate problems and changes in the environment. So the, I, that means that you have to have an organization which is consciously looking at what it does all the time and thinking how to change and improve it, rather than an organization which is constantly searching for a plateau or a stable working environment. Um, I think if you're not changing and not looking to improve with each step of what you do, probably you're at risk of somebody else doing that and being blindsided. And again, again, with the armed forces, you have a particularly structured way of doing this. You have uh, wash-ups and post-engagement analysis where you look at what happened and what went wrong, what could be improved. It doesn't have to be the armed forces. After I put on a conference, I will sit down with key members of the team and talk about how we can improve it next time. People always say to me, uh, Don, are you happy with your with how it went this year? And the answer is always no. No, because I can see where it went wrong, but we're going to go through the process improvement piece. So it, to that extent, we are a learning organisation, and I think every organisation needs to be. You know, I, I'm always struck... Uh, and you're really driving the point home, you know, with your your assertiveness and 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 the army um, examples. Um, L and D people, to me, and this is undoubtedly my personal bias, but they are kind of the arty people. They are the artists. They they are flamboyant. They love the training. They're very different to the operational execution people. Um, is that the way it should be? Is that difference perhaps the reason that they're not as assertive and not as linked to outcomes like you, you cited productivity, for example? Um, or is that a huge generalization on my part that, you know, L&D are the artists uh, of the organization? Well, it, it is a huge generalization. It doesn't mean you're not right, of course, but it is a huge generalization. I'm not sure, I'm not sure necessarily we are the artists of the organization, but I think people come into learning and development for particular reasons. 
And the reasons tend to be, you could characterize them as, as manifold, but there are probably a few key reasons. One is L&D people like to help other people, typically. Another is a lot of people who train like to be in front of a room and like the, the experience of being in front of a room, and they, they get energy from that. And uh, an, another reason is that many people in learning development like to create things, not necessarily being artists, but they like to create things, they like to create a course, they like to put something together. That's all fine. I'm not saying, now, this doesn't preclude you from having those characteristics. Sorry, having those characteristics does not preclude you from also being capable of being focused on the bottom line, being assertive, able to have conversations where you say no, yes, very clearly to people, rather than beating about the bush. And I know lots of people in learning development who are like that, and very often people who rise up through the organisation can only do it if they're sufficiently assertive. But I do think that in the future, the shift towards the need for smart interpretation of data is going to bring with it the need for people who are more engaged with the, with the business and more capable of focusing on some of the things we haven't focused on in the past. Now, whether we have those skills at the moment in learning development, um, actually, I was going to say we don't know, actually, we do know, because the Learning and Performance Institute has, which I chair, has the capability map, and the capability map is a free resource that you can self-assess against which lists 25 skills for the 21st century for departments. And going through uh, the data of more than a 1,000 people self-assessing self against it, it's very clear that the skills which are both the most popular and which people rate themselves the highest against are to do with content creation delivery. Of the 25 skills, the one which is at the bottom in terms of people's assessment of their own ability at it, is data analytics. So we certainly don't have those skills at the moment, and that's understandable. We will need to get them. And do you think that those data analytics skills should be present within L&D, or should they be borrowed from HR more generally? In other words, I've asked that in two ways, actually, I realize now a little earlier. What is the relationship between HR and L&D, is I think what I'm asking. Well, actually, there's two questions there. Firstly, the question about the skills. Um, I always say you you don't need all these skills in your department. We we list 25 skills in the capability map. Most L&D departments consist of a handful of people, maybe three, maybe the average. Now, you're not going to be able to cover almost certainly all of those skills amongst three people. So you do have to borrow them. And I think it's very wise, as you say, for L&D to recognise that it can go out and borrow skills in data, skills in procurement, skills in marketing, which is particularly deficient at, from other parts of the organisation. And it should do, because otherwise it typically tries to invent everything itself. And that's exhausting. And it's a bad use of time. Then there's the second question, where does learning and development fit with HR? And the really weak answer, which nonetheless I believe is the correct answer, is it depends. It depends on what the organisation wants to do with HR and L&D and whether they can fit them together. I personally believe that learning and development really belongs in the organisation. I think that it is the role of the manager, the first role of the manager, to ensure that the people underneath them are being developed, that they are capable of doing their job and also being prepared for the next job. And I think that role should be supported by learning and development. So 
I think learning development for me sits across the organization in each manager's hands and should be supported by L&D in a variety of ways. It can lead, it can support, it can provide advice, it can get out of the way. But it should definitely be helping those managers do their job well. Now, it can do that as part of HR or outside it. I'm not terribly fussed. I think whether it fits in HR or not is, is much less important than how much daily contact it has with the managers because they're the people who decide how people spend their time. And I know that people need to be spending more of their time learning than they are at the moment. I think this has been such a wonderful journey, uh, a very high level journey through uh, L&D. <laughs> Hopefully not and, too uh, high level. No, no, it's great. You know, I think we often just get caught up in the moment of L&D. We don't often take a helicopter perspective, probably because we don't have a Don Taylor who's been doing it for uh, for some time. Um, Don, uh, as we go out, uh, what is your uh, final piece of advice for L&D professionals uh, what should they do next? What should they be thinking about now? My my most important piece of advice is don't be comfortable. Because if you're comfortable, things are changing rapidly in our field. And if you're comfortable, there's something wrong. I, I, I by the way, have sat on stage and I've watched innumerable keynote speakers wave their arms around and talk about how things are changing. But So I don't do this lightly, but things are changing, undoubtedly in learning development. We're going through the same things that happened to sales 20 years ago, to marketing 15 years ago with this new data-driven approach. And it will change what we do. So firstly, don't be comfortable. But the second thing is go out and follow good people who have got great advice to offer, practical experience and tips to share. So I'm talking about people like uh, Kevin McNulty at McKinsey, Trish Ull, uh, Laurie Niles Hoffman, Kevin Yates at Facebook, Ben Betts, Miriam Nealon. Uh, Derek Mitchell. Um, these are all people who are online. They've got they've got good stuff to share around what's happening now in learning development, and lots of other people as well. Um, but these are all people worth following. And and challenge yourself to one target this year or in the next twelve months to do something to develop yourself in a way that will help you professionally. It could be getting a certificate in something. Or it could be, I just need to know more about this thing. Or it could be, I know a bit about it, and I'm going to get myself to know more about it to the extent that I talk about it at a conference. But challenge yourself. If you're feeling, un if you're feeling uncomfortable, good, you should be. Challenge yourself to get better at something and push yourself and the field we work in forward. Donald Taylor, thank you so much for joining the All Hands on Tech podcast. It's been great to be here, Max. Thank you. That was Max and Don talking about the L&D profession and where it should be heading. I do hope you enjoyed it and if you work in L&D, it would be great to hear your thoughts on the discussion and how you plan on challenging yourself this year. So please do leave your comments. Remember to subscribe, like, rate and share on whatever podcast platform you're using. Thanks everyone and hope to see you next time.